This podcast is brought to you by the Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University. Hi, everyone. I'm Bev Jones, and this is Jazzed About Work, where we talk about everything that can have an impact on your career. Today, we're talking with two people who have chosen service as part of their professional portfolio. Both came to the bench by different paths. Judge Gail Williams Byers is an African-American woman, municipal court judge in South Euclid, Ohio. She was a former prosecutor. And Tom Hodson is currently a visiting judge after serving as both a municipal court judge and common pleas judge in Athens, Ohio. Before taking the bench, she was a criminal defense attorney. Gail, I've been following your career. Oh, I guess I should say Judge Gail. Judge Gail, I've been following your career for years since you were an undergraduate. And I'm not surprised that you have um, become a judge and you've done interesting things. But I, I, I think the course of your career was sort of surprising. And I, I'd love it if you would kind of walk us through how you went from being a student in Cleveland, Ohio, to um, to being a, a distinguished judge. I am so honored to be here actually talking about my career with you, Bev, because I don't know that I've ever made a career move without consulting you. And so this is really fascinating for me to, to sort of look back on this journey. When I was a student, um, even you know in high school and through undergrad, I don't know that I necessarily saw myself as a judge ever, um, because um, as you can probably imagine, I, I don't have and didn't have even then a lot of role models. There weren't a lot of black females who were judges um, and certainly not mentoring young people like myself. I'll say as time has progressed, we've seen more of that, and I myself have taken an interest in doing so, but I did know that I was very interested in the law. And so in undergrad, I took law-related classes as well as I had done in high school. And I did well and, and went on to, to actually intern in Washington, D.C. I believed at one point my life would take a turn and I would be a very, very good lobbyist. And that wasn't my reality. But I was really blessed to meet fantastic people, including you. But that has also worked to extend expand my my circle of, of mentors that I now collect and they add so so much value to my life. You are adept at being a mentor and um, attracting mentors. Going back to those days when you were still a student or going up through being a young lawyer, how did you um, manage to, to collect that circle of mentors? Well, you know, it started when I was in high school. I was introduced to a program called Career Beginnings, and that program matched students with mentors. Um, for, and that was the, my first experience. I must have been maybe a, a sophomore or a junior in high school. And it was the very first time in my life that I'd ever been matched with a professional adult that whose entire responsibility to me was to mentor me, to help me figure out life after high school and even well beyond that. And believe it or not, the person I was matched with, Ann Penn, 
was the director of affirmative action and equal employment at Case Western Reserve University, the college I ultimately attended. After we met, she introduced me to so many things, and I was so very impressed that not only did our relationship blossom, it continues to. And so then back, taking you back to your career path, when you were in Washington as, um, as, an, as an intern in companies and, and then a law student and then a, sort of a rising young Hill staffer, you, you had the concept so you could recruit your own mentors. Is that right? Absolutely. And then what I learned as a, a growing professional is the thing that no young person really wants to learn too soon, which is you don't know it all. Uh-huh. And that there are so many people around you that stand ready to help you and guide you and pour into you if you're only willing to ask. And again, being young, we all feel like superheroes. We got an S on our chest and a cape on our back. Of course, we know it all, Uh but we don't. And so I was very eager to get connected with people who I learned very early on were willing to bring me along. And I remember the day I quit my internship at the White House because it just wasn't challenging enough. And I sauntered my way down L Street to the offices of the company I interned for every summer and sashayed myself into the vice president's <laughs> office and plopped down and essentially helped myself out as free labor if only they would challenge me. And I probably should have been thrown out on my ear. But instead, it was that willingness to go and to seek and to gain more opportunities that rewarded me with one of the most enduring, effective, and bountiful relationships I have in my life to date. Well, I remember that moment, too, because uh, a staff person brought you into my office and said, this is Gail, you have to talk with her. And you basically (laughs) said, look, I'm going to be your next intern. Here's the deal. Um, Somebody else is paying for it. This is what I can do for you. And so instead of coming in and saying, this is what you need, you made your case. And you didn't give me a choice, uh, really, because it was such a compelling case. So you started your internship that moment by telling me um, what you could offer me um, as well as as what you wanted to learn. And and I suspect that that has been a technique you've used since then. Well, if you ask Judge Hodgson, he's had trouble getting rid of me as well. <laughs> ah. As I've adopted him as another mentor. Because, again, I find that there are these rich relationships and these wells of knowledge and information and access and just learning that's so available that if you only avail yourself, you become not just a better professional but a better person. And so I've benefited greatly, and I hope that in some way, I think there's this thing you taught me called reciprocal mentoring. So I hope that there's some modicum of that benefit that I get to give back. But I'll tell you, I feel like I'm the greatest recipient so far. So when you went from um, being um, an attorney um, to becoming a judge, is 
is part of the way you learned to be a judge by was by attracting mentors and 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 kind of getting information and modeling from them? I think that's there's two parts to that, yes and no. Um, I believe that the best judges are those who really have a heart for service, not just those who see themselves sort of elevated and maybe peering down their noses at others, but really deeply, truly have a heart for service and are are willing to serve. When I was um, serving and working as an attorney, and specifically as a prosecutor, I saw being a judge as the highest level of service for my profession and that I wanted to do more, and I knew that I could do more, but that would be the next step and the next progression to doing more. Now, indeed, it did take sort of finding other judges that I wanted to maybe model somewhat after, but also understanding, just like with children, you're going to bring a bit of yourself to the table each time. You're going to bring your own thoughts and your own ideas, but it is important to have mentors that are prepared to assist you because even though it's another level of service inside the profession, it's an entirely different arena that you've not experienced before. And also, it's lonely. You don't have the same kinds of comrades that you have if perhaps you were a defense attorney or a prosecutor, or if you were doing um, civil litigation or some other kind of litigation where you have this instant camaraderie. So you need mentors to sort of prepare you for the transition into a different lifestyle in a different type of setting. So you were attracted to the role of being a judge because you saw it as a, as a way to have a bigger impact. I, I remember from the time you talked about some of the issues and family situations and problems you came across, and you were struggling to find ways that you could do more than you could as a prosecutor. My Absolutely. sense is that you were looking at the, the goal in terms of your impact, and you didn't give a lot of uh, thought at the time to what it meant to be a judge and then all of a sudden you were elected and you were a judge. So it must have been important to have people around who could help you figure out how to craft your next role. Is that right? You are precisely correct. And it, it's important to surround yourself with learned individuals who have been there or who are there who can help you navigate where you are now. I know that you were not motivated by the image of yourself wearing a robe and having people stand up when you walked in the room. But I want to ask both you and Judge Tom, even though that wasn't your motivation, what's it like in in a career path of working really hard and, and, and being focused on um, values and getting things done when all of a sudden people treat you in a different way because you are wearing a robe and they do stand up and, and you have some sort of awe-inspiring responsibility. It, it must be kind of scary and weird. Well, it, <clears throat> it is scary and weird, <laughs> I have to admit. But uh, it, it, it's not so much that people were honoring me in, in any way. It's that they're honoring the office. They're honoring the judiciary. They're honoring the position of judge. 
And what that does, and I think Judge Gale might might agree, it puts a, a greater sense of responsibility on the person who's wearing the robe. You can't get caught up in that people are honoring you, they're honoring the position, so then you have to deserve the position. You, you become a, a better judge by uh, trying to get the respect of the people who are in front of you. So the robe itself is a, a symbol of office, and although it may inspire awe, awe or fear or something with other people, when you put that on every time, you realize this is not about you. It's a reminder that you're in service, not just to the people in the room, but the entire system and value set in the community. The the entire community, your jurisdiction, uh, to to your fellow judges, uh, to the judiciary itself. So uh, the the robe is a a symbol. It's a symbol to the people in front of you, but it's also a symbol to the person wearing it. Gail, when you um, started your, your term as a judge. What was your, your vision? You were driven by service, but what was it that you wanted to do to create or, or how did you want to see your uh, role as a judge evolve? I had in mind that the, the duty of uh, the judiciary is to not only dispense justice fairly, which is what I believe everyone expects, but as a, what I considered myself as a a younger judge, I wanted to make the experience in a courtroom just something more palatable to the average person that came in. Um, For most people who come into courts, I wanted their experience to be something where they could understand the language that was being used. It is a process that's more accessible to them, that they had a judge that could empathize, not sympathize, but empathize with some of the circumstances and situations that they presented with. I was, um, I, I had the honor of being robed by Ohio's former um, Supreme Court Justice Yvette McGee Brown. And at my robing, she gave me a few pieces of advice. One of them, which I've kept with me forever, is that she reminded me that the court that I sit on, which is a municipal court, and we handle misdemeanor or lower level offenses and everything from your basic traffic offenses to some of your lower level criminal offenses, um, theft, um, some vandalisms and the like. And she told me that I should always remember that my court is most people's first experience with the justice system. And it is going to be my responsibility to shape for them how they view this justice system for everyone else. Because most people don't begin their experience in the felony court or someplace else, but it's that speeding ticket or that traffic offense. And that if I do not take care of my responsibility as a judge in the court that I am in, then I will perhaps forever shape how someone views justice, no matter what court they walk into. And that really stuck with me because I find that it is so very true 
And so when I have embraced that in my everyday experience, I really try to make sure that as people are experiencing this justice system, even in the municipal court, that they are treated like they are human beings, that they understand that there is a cause and effect for every action, there's a reaction, but that they are no less a, a person that deserves dignity and respect just because they ha- their feet happen to land in this court. I even go as far as to say that even in, in 2017, to refer to a judge by their first name is something fairly nuanced because we're used to calling them you know, by their surname. And I would always make this joke that, you know, for some judges, you got to check your ID to remember your name because everyone refers to you so frequently by your title. And I actually like the relaxedness of being referred to as Judge Gale because it still honors the position, but it reminds someone that I'm, you know, still just the same person that they are. But it does not take away, I think, from the deference of the position of being a judge. So my goal each day is to make sure that when this term is over and whatever legacy I am allowed to leave, that the court is left better than it was when I started. We'll be back with Bev after this brief message. The Voinovich School of Leadership and Public Affairs at Ohio University is having an impact today while providing innovative education for tomorrow's leaders. The master's program in public administration and environmental studies leads students to greatness in nonprofit, environmental, public sector, and government settings. Learn to lead at the Voinovich School. We're now accepting applications. Information is available at ohio.edu backslash Voinovich School. One of the ways it seems that you're improving the court is by introducing a commitment to transparency, that you're looking for ways to invite the community in and let people see what's going on. Is that right? That is correct. You know, if you can imagine, courts are have traditionally been seen as these you know, very, very obscure places. Most people want no dealing with the court. It's the last place they want to go to And if you tell them that you're the judge, you're the last person on earth they want to come and see doing their job. And in large part, it's just because of the reputation that courts have garnered. I actually take a different approach to that. And I believe that for many people, their concerns and even fear about court is largely based upon the unknown. They don't see courts in action. They don't know a whole lot about what goes on there and what they do know isn't positive. They don't really see courts as change agents or judges as change agents. They don't see courts as problem solvers. They don't see them as intervening in positive ways to make positive enduring impacts on communities, whether it's the ones they live in or the ones that are neighboring to them. 
these are, and this is just in general, they expect to have a negative experience in the courtroom. And my goal is to, to change that in meaningful ways by live streaming proceedings so that they can actually see what's happening in the courtroom in real time as it's happening to offer them more access through a night court docket that allows individuals who work or have daytime obligations like school or doctor's visits to still be responsible and to come handle their their cases even during hours that are non-traditional or to offer um, a problem-solving docket like mental health to deal with individuals with severe and persistent mental illnesses and to understand that there are root cause issues that really do drive some of their behaviors and that that needs to be addressed, not so much as the criminal behavior that may have brought them into the court, which does need to be addressed as well, but that sometimes is secondary to the long-standing mental challenges that so many people are dealing with, which, by the way, courts are becoming, more often than not, the places where the services are being infused and presented because of the shift to more community-based treatment, and they're getting that access through court orders. As a judge, do you have the, the flexibility, the, the resources to come up with, um, oh, maybe flexible punishments or um, responses to the problems presented to you that don't fit the traditional kind of criminal um, approach? Well, I do believe in what's called creative um, punishment or responses by creative sentencing. And I think Judge Hodgson might agree that, you know, there is and perhaps should not be a cookie-cutter approach to every offense that's in front of you. And in, in some instances, yes, there isn't a lot of daylight between perhaps one speeding ticket and another. But I'll share a story with you. And, and Judge Hudson, I don't know if I shared this with you, but I had a young man in my court, and this was now several months ago. And this young man was probably between uh, 19 and 21, very, very young. And he appeared in court on a speeding ticket. And his speeding ticket was, I, I think he was doing somewhere around 80 miles per hour or so in a 25-mile-per-hour zone. I, when I read the ticket, I thought it was a typo. I genuinely believed that somehow there was a typographical error. But he, of course, the, the defendant, he corrected me and said, yes, indeed he was, and that he was just testing out his wheels. He was testing out the muscle on his car. And after a brief lecture, and I explained to him how absolutely scary his behavior was to every loved one in his life, particularly parents, grandparents. It's the last call anybody wants to get, that their child is in the hospital, um, they've been harmed or they're, they're injured, or that they've injured or killed someone else. At 18 or 20 or 21, trust me, these messages don't resonate so easily or so quickly. And so his sentence, which I know that he was expecting to get a hefty fine walk out the door, maybe make some promises that he'd never do it again and be okay with it. So, but what I've learned is that at that age, if you impose a financial penalty, more often than not, it's going to be the more mature adults in their life that end up paying it. 
the person in front of you is not going to pay it, and I don't know that the lesson's really learned. So with this gentleman, I made him a deal. I told him, I said, listen, I'm going to fine you, I think, $100 plus cost, and I'm going to suspend your fine on um, contingent on one thing. So I required that he completed 25 hours of community service, but he could only do his community service at a local funeral home. And I didn't care what he did at the funeral home. If he had to prep bodies or if he had to prepare a parlor, it didn't matter to me. But he only received credit for his community service once he returned with his own obituary. And he, if you could have seen the look on his face, it changed completely because he was never expecting to be sent to a funeral home and to have to return with his own obituary. So it's probably a week or so later, the first thing I get is a, a letter in the mail from a young lady who was sitting in the audience who actually thanked me for the sentence for that young man. And in her letter, she said, you know, he may not realize it now, but you have done him such a great service perhaps by saving his life and giving him a better opportunity in the future to be more responsible. When he returned to court, and it's maybe about a month or so later, he had completed his community service, and the young man returned with his grandfather with his obituary, which I'll say was nicely done. And so he had to write time, it as though he had been killed in this accident. Correct. Correct. And... He returned with the obituary, and at the time he turned in his obituary, his grandfather turned to him and gave him a bus pass and had confiscated his car keys. <laughs> it was perhaps the funniest exchange I had seen, but it was a lesson well learned. The young man is likely not to drive like that anytime soon, and he still had transportation on using the public transportation system, but he had no more car keys, at least at that period of time. I was very pleased with the outcome, not because he had received another level of punishment, but because it seemed like he got it. I think one of the that, things that Judge Gale is, is pointing out, and I think it's incumbent on judges to, to be creative, uh, is that we're constantly trying to break a pattern of behavior, a, a, an a illegal or aberrant pattern of behavior that's going to only escalate unless that pattern is broken. So we're trying to say, well, maybe a fine won't do it. Maybe something creative like Judge Gale just described, maybe that'll do it. But it, it's it's breaking the chain, whether it's an abusive situation or uh, drunken driving or drugs or, or speeding. It, it can apply across the board. You know, Judge Gale and Judge Tom, I've observed both of your careers for a while, and I, my sense is that all along the way, you've both been driven by a desire to be of service and more particularly uh, a desire to bring about change that you've landed in one place or another. And you've always been grappling with the question of how can we make things better in this sphere that you happen to be in. Now, in this conversation, of course, we always have some focus on career. And, and so here's my question, maybe starting with Judge Tom. When you are 
a judge and you're struggling with creating change. You're creating skills that can apply in lots of different situations. You were a judge for a while, and then you went and reinvented yourself to have other career paths. What did you take away? What was the big learning experience that you've been able to use ever since then in your career What, when you were a judge? And how are you still applying your, your understanding that came from your time in the courtroom? Well, it, that's a complicated question, but let me try to jump in. And I, I think that as a judge, the, the many years that I was judge, I learned how to dig through uh, mountains of facts and trivia and uh, verbal garbage that you hear in, in a courtroom and come up with being able to frame issues very, very well, uh, issues of controversy. And then I think the second skill that I developed was then looking at what were what are the arguments to try to solve those issues and and not being married to one side, but to look at both sides and to be eva- be able to evaluate all arguments. And then, knowing that there has to be a solution and you have to be the decision maker. Uh, I think all of those three things, being able to frame issues through a a lot of the the verbal garbage that you hear and be able to sift through that to get down to the real issues and then be able to hear the arguments uh, again through the verbal noise and then be able to arrive at a solution. That's helped it helped both in my legal practice, but it also helps in any administrative uh, job that that you're in, whether you're in academia or or any other position. So, as a as a judge, you really learn how to sort through all the mass of views and information and, and cut to the chase. Well, and- just imagine, people are not very good at giving narratives. Uh, they're not very good at giving narratives even about things that they experience. They toss in a lot of extraneous things. And so uh, they think they're doing you a favor by telling you what Aunt, Aunt Millie did last Tuesday yes. when it's really irrelevant to anything. So you have to be able to allow them to speak, but you got to be able to sort through all of that. And And I was better – doing that after being a judge than I was before. Judge Gale, does that resonate with you? Do you see that your some of your skill sets have changed tremendously from this experience? Yeah, certainly, and they've been honed through this experience. It's, I believe, um, important to know that there is a difference in perspective from when you are the, the litigator, the attorney in the case, versus being the judge. When you are the attorney and you have a particular point or perspective or a certain burden, then you present your case from a certain vantage point. And it may be important to provide, at least from your perspective, to provide the court with certain information. However, as the judge, as Judge Tom indicated, you have to have and utilize a different skill set in filtering through the information on both sides to drill down to what is important and what needs to be applied to the law for purposes of of your position and your seating in the courtroom. 
understanding that there are some competing agendas, if you will, that are there, your responsibility, um, sort of similar to what Judge Tom said, is to, to get through and cut through and filter through what is really, really important. When you're an attorney and you're a trial attorney, whether you're a prosecutor or defense attorney or even on the civil side, you're advocating for a position. So you're really arguing one side of what is always a two-sided issue. And your your whole impetus is to get that point or points, those points, across to, to the judge. When you're the judge, your job is to filter through all of that and to come out with a decision that you believe is right based upon the facts as you determine them and the law as you apply it. Uh, so it's a different skill set. It's a whole different way of looking at the law. It sounds like um, achieving balance is part of what you do as a judge in, in many ways, be, between two opposing views, uh, between the um, traditional judicial system and, and the most effective punishment. Balance is a, is a, a theme. I would guess that for a judge, because it is such um, a burdensome job, it's such a um, you you are carrying responsibilities which are very big in the community. Balance in your own life is 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 part of what you have to to learn when you're a judge. It, the dealing with the stress and the responsibility is is that something also that changes you when you become a judge? The the need to kind of keep the rest of your life in balance. I, I think so, and it's it's very difficult. And I'm not saying that I did it very well because you end up taking things home with you. You're thinking about things all the time, uh, decisions that you you have to make. Uh, I, I think the, the division between work and home uh, is, is very difficult uh, for most judges. Judge Gale, would you agree with that? Undoubtedly, that um, your, your work-life balance, if you will, sometimes becomes imbalanced. You spend you know, several hours on the bench or at the court doing the work that you do, and for those that you know, are, are invested in, in the work that they do, it's almost inevitable that it will follow you home or sometimes to the gym or to other places in your life where you will find yourself revisiting things that are, that are going on or things that are happening or decisions that need to be made or even decisions that have been made. I, I mean, I would suspect Judge Tom has had a similar experience that I have had in the past where you may have a, a particular case, maybe it's a, a domestic violence case, and you've maybe set a certain bond or certain conditions, and you don't have a crystal ball. So you don't have any way of knowing that a certain outcome is going to be achieved or that certain things may not happen. Yeah, you may believe that you've done everything you can to keep everyone safe, but you sometimes leave with that gnawing feeling of wondering, did I make the right decision or did I do the right thing? Or I am so hopeful that what I put in place is enough because if it's not, then it could go another way. And that too is concerning, not so much because there may be a media backlash, 
but because there are real lives attached to the decisions that you make. That's right. And and let me hearken back to one thing that, that Judge Gale said earlier, and, and I, I can't stress this enough. Most judges are in one-judge courts, believe it or not. Most judges in Ohio, for example, are in one-judge courts, and it, it's clear in other states it's the same. The sense of isolation and loneliness that you have in that position uh, is sometimes overwhelming. This whole concept of judicial isolationism and, and the fact that you feel so alone professionally and, and you have to isolate yourself to be perceived and actually neutral in, in so many situations – uh, that kind of isolation, however, carries over to the um, work-life balance or more appropriately, the work-family balance. I, I know I can only speak for myself, but it, it had an effect on the way that I parented and it had an effect on the way that I um, – was a spouse. I, I think I was much more isolated from my spouse uh, when I was judge, and I think I was also uh, more isolated from uh, my children uh, when I was judge because you can't just turn that on and off. Uh, you know, you're isolated on the bench, but then you're integrated in the family, and that that was a very very difficult. Uh, transition for me. You can't uh, buddy around with your old colleagues that uh, were fellow lawyers when you were in practice. Uh, you're under a microscope all the time as to your behavior and your demeanor and how your family acts and whether uh, they're acting in accordance with uh, sort of judicial constraints. But but it's that loneliness and isolation that makes you pull within yourself even more than than normal. So, I, boy, I would have arguments inside my own head on almost every major case, and I'm sure Judge Gale does too. You want to pick up the phone and, and say, you know, help to somebody, and you really can't do that, uh, and, and that's difficult. So that takes us back perhaps to the beginning of this conversation when we were talking about mentors, and it's not so much mentors looking at the substance of your work anymore, but one of the things in a in a, a weighty career like this is it's important to have a circle. It's important to have a circle of people who understand your career and who you can call sometimes just to, to, to talk about, I'm tired, or I'm stressed, or I don't know what to do next, that, that the, the people that you bring around you can be an important part of your success. Is, is that I, right? I think older judges, uh, and maybe not older as far as age, but older in experience uh, are, are, are helpful. There, there's no way that Judge Gale would ever call me up and say, what should I do in this case or what sentence should I give? That That's not appropriate. But if you have... Uh, say, you know, I, I'm really worn out, or, or uh, this problem, administrative problem, how do, how do I get around that? that? Those are the kinds of things that you can talk about. If you can surround yourself with a group of people that you trust uh, that have like experiences, it helps immensely. 
And Judge Gale, that sounds like your style. Is 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 that what you're doing? Oh, absolutely. And I will tell you, initially, I um, I didn't know how that worked or if that was appropriate, but I did have an innate feeling that it was necessary for me. I was keenly aware when I took office that I was the only judge on my bench and that I didn't have readily accessible judicial colleagues and that the people around me were the people who worked for me and that I would no doubt need access to experienced judges who were willing to share information with me and guidance almost from day one because it harkened back to even the days of being a young intern that plopped down in the vice president's office in Washington, D.C., I didn't know it all. And there are things that I'm still learning even now. And so I needed the ability to reach out to other judges to say, okay, from an administrator's perspective, what do you do under this circumstance? Or how do I navigate this? Or have you ever had an experience like this? And if so, you know, what were, what were some of the best practices in, in dealing with this? I had never dealt with a funding authority directly. I didn't know what, what that dynamic meant or what to expect. And it was because of the help that I got from other judges that were willing to share their experiences with me, but also to continue to to pour into me and give me advice that has really, really helped me. Now, the thing is that they aren't let off the hook because they helped me through those initial years because I still call them, um, as Judge Tom knows, I still call them because I still need questions answered. And I still find myself in situations where things are new. And I think that as long as you are open to lifelong learning, this is it's always going to be new. Some things are going to be rote, but many things are still going to come to you fresh and new for which you will still need the benefit of learned colleagues to help you navigate it. And I am so blessed to have so many that are willing to share their experiences. I have no idea what I would do without them. There, there's another uh, aspect to this that I that I think that we need to talk about, and and that is um, public perception, and perception of other office holders towards the judge. For example, uh, when I was elected, the, my first term, I was the youngest elected judge in the state of Ohio. And I was 31 years old, and people presumed I didn't know what I was doing. People presumed I would have certain biases. People tried to take advantage of me. So you have to be in a defensive posture. Judge Gale, being an African-American woman judge, uh, and there aren't still uh, are too few of those, I'm sure, Judge, you you get some perception difficulties as well, right? Perception difficulties and perception challenges, especially. And perhaps unlike what you experienced, and I, I don't know, and you can speak to this more directly, Judge Tom, but for me in particular, even being a young African-American 
woman who's a judge and in a position of so much authority, there's even an expectation of how that authority is used and utilized and how it is meted out because there are still these ideas of, you know, what black women do and how they respond to certain things and having to combat that on a a daily basis, whether you have a robe or not. I, like you, certainly experienced uh, several challenges and continue to, perhaps in part because uh, I am considered maybe a younger judge or because I am um, a, a female or because I am a minority female, whatever the reason is, it's certainly, there are certain filters through which I believe people first um, determine how they will engage you. They filter it perhaps first through gender and maybe then through your race or ethnicity and then perhaps through the position you hold. So a 31-year-old white male judge may not be perceived the same as a 40-year-old black female judge. And I think that's the reality of our society in some regards. But the judge has to be cognizant of those public perceptions, sometimes even when they hurt. And then uh, gear behavior, not decisions, but gear behavior to counteract those. Absolutely. And And sometimes to absolutely disregard them to ensure that for everyone in the room, because you cannot dictate what the room will look like. The the litigants in your courtroom come from all kinds of backgrounds. And so to that degree, I think it is important that the judge responds in a way that still honors the position and honors the bench and honors the judiciary, period. This is a wonderful point. We, we are back to the idea that as a judge, you're very, very aware that you're in service and that this is a career in which every day you're reminded that you are serving the community, you're serving s- certain principles. Um, really appreciate Judge Gale and uh, Judge Tom for kind of sharing the inside view of a, of a career that brings you into the, the courtroom. And I I thank you for um, being with me today. Do either of you have any uh, sort of uh, parting suggestions for people who are thinking about a career in service, either as a judge or in another way? Well, I'll let Judge Gale get the last word, so I'll jump in first and, and just say if you're in a service profession, and being a judge certainly is a service profession, when you lose your zest for service, get out. Ah. When you lose your zest for service, if you're no longer embracing service, then you're in it for yourself, and that's a dangerous and it position. Working. Judge Gale? I cannot agree more with Judge Tom's um, his position that this is clearly a service-driven profession, and that there are fewer, I believe, fewer professions in this world that will provide you the, the type of um, payback that you get from knowing that you can change someone's life 
and not just by a court order, but you can actually walk the paces with them if you're just that committed. And so it is certainly, I think, a profession that is worthy of entering. And I'll also remind anyone who's considering it to please do so because we can't regenerate ourselves. We need an entire generation of young people who are willing to pick up where we are looking to leave our legacies and to take us into another era of jurisprudence. And so I invite anyone who wants to serve, but certainly understanding that you are doing it for service. And if you do not have that as the forefront of why you're doing it, then consider something else because it is sometimes thankless, but it is rewarding. Well, I would like to thank you both then for your service, for being willing to carry this heavy responsibility and for joining us here today. Thank you, Bev. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bev. Thank you. Today, we've been talking about two people, both judges, Judge Gail Williams Byers of South Euclid Municipal Court and Judge Tom Hudson, currently a visiting judge. We've been talking about their careers of service. Today's career tip is that, for an outsized career, you need to have bigger goals. When you're working for values that are bigger than yourself, you'll move faster and further than you ever imagined. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Beverly Jones, author of Think Like an Entrepreneur, Act Like a CEO. Thank you.